This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today to discuss the Gaia hypothesis is Dr. Michael Ruse, retired professor emeritus at Ontario's University of Guelph and UCL Workmeister Professor of Philosophy at Florida State, also author of the 2013 University of Chicago Press volume, The Gaia Hypothesis, Science on a Pagan World. Professor Ruse, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me, David. Thank you. Professor Ruse's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, each of the 18 climate crisis-related interviews I've conducted over the past four years has begged the Gaia hypothesis, perhaps more than any others, my interview with Paul Ehrlich last July since he has been a noted critic. Simply explained, the Gaia hypothesis proposed in the early 1970s by James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis argues all of planetary life works autonomously to maintain environmental conditions within a narrow range of habitability or within a dynamic state of constancy via a long list of biological self-regulating mechanisms. As the wiki entry states, living organisms interact in their inorganic surroundings to form a synergistic and self-regulating complex system that maintains and perpetuates the conditions for life on the planet. In sum, Gaia argues the planet is self-regulating. Gaia is of particular interest relative to what the climate crisis poses for our survival since it has been interpreted in two radically different ways, one in which we have an accountability or a moral duty to defend Gaia, another whereby the planet is resilient or immune, from human-caused global warming, or more specifically, fossil fuel emissions. With me again to discuss Gaia is Dr. Michael Ruse. So with that, Michael, my opening question, of course, is if you can provide an explanation as to how Lovelock and Margulis arrived at the hypothesis and how the day of fine or explain the planet's biosphere's ability to maintain homeostasis, as I said, functioning as a self-regulating system, if not an organism. Okay, well, let's just pick up on that. But like I always do, let me talk about myself first. Um, (laughs) And to say that I came into this whole Gaia debate a little bit, I won't say backwards, but a little bit sideways. I didn't pick it up initially because it was something that I felt driven to do. I mean, I knew about it. I come from a family in England, when I, when I lived in England many years ago, who were very much into this holistic stuff and everything like that. So uh, I knew of it. I, it wasn't a surprise, but I was asked to referee, not referee, to review some books uh, for the Chronicle of Higher Education on Gaia. And then my editor at the University of Chicago Press wrote to me and said, I think there might be a book here. And I'm the kind of guy, if, if an editor says, I think there might be a book here, I'm the kind of guy who says, oh, yes, <laughs> I've always wanted to write it. <laughs> Let's draw up a contract. And that's happened uh, for me. But it was serendipitous because, in a way, uh, without showing off, I think I was the person to do it. 
And certainly, I, it turned out I was the person who wanted to do it and was incredibly thrilled at doing it. So uh, let's put it all in context. Now, I had heard of the Gaia hypothesis. I had not at that time. Uh, we're talking now at the beginning of the last decade, around, to what, 2012, something like that. Mm. Uh, I had not at that time met Jim Lovelock, although I did know his co-worker, Lynn Margulis. I'd, I'd come across her in various aspects. So we were not totally new. And so obviously the first thing I did was sit down and read all about the Gaia stuff. And, you know, it, 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 it made sense. It, it wasn't something that I read, you know, rather like Saul on the road to Damascus, where I, you know, I said, oh, my God, now I see the whole meaning of everything. No, that wasn't the case. But when I, as I read it, I said, you know, I understand what's going on. It's, it's not opaque like reading, what shall I say, like reading Hegel or some other continental philosopher. Uh, the, the, what happened was the following. It, Jim Lovelock is a scientist, but it's a little bit misleading to, just to say a scientist. Jim Lovelock is a, is a, is a physical chemist, and that's what he was trained at. But it turns out he has an uncanny ability as an inventor, putting – well, what he did was a lot – you know, in the, in the late uh, 40s, there was a lot of war surplus uh, valves and all those things. And Jim would buy them and put them together with the most – making the most incredible machines. Uh, one, for instance, detecting things in – you know, elements in the atmosphere uh, that he said, you know, if you open the jar in Japan, I can spot it within a week. And he wasn't in, – in England, he wasn't lying. So uh, Jim has a reputation uh, – had – has a reputation as a, a totally brilliant uh, inventor to, to such an extent that he was made a fellow of the Royal Society in England. I, I, I think about uh, 2000 uh, – no, about 1970, but it doesn't really matter. At least by the time Jim got into Geyer in any big way, he was a fellow of the Royal Society. And Lynn Margulis, incidentally, who was the, the first wife uh, of uh, uh, Carl Sagan, or rather, let's put it this way, Carl Sagan was her first husband. Uh, she's a fellow or member, rather, of the uh, National Academy of Sciences. So we've got two people who are very well respected as scientists. They're not you know, weirdos in what we say, uh, some aspect, some unknown state in the American South, let's call it Florida or something like that, uh, at a university nobody's ever heard of uh, and doing their thing. No, they, they, they were reputable. Now, Jim has always been, I won't say a maverick, but a little bit a man on his own. As I say, he's an inventor, not a bench scientist. Uh, he's never really been an academic uh, a teacher or that sort of thing. I, mean, I think he would have been a good one. But it, he, so what happened was that Jim never really had a regular university job. He, he was affiliated at times. But come the 60s, and Jim was doing work for various either government organizations or private organizations. I think the Pi radio people, for instance, uh, hired him for a while. Uh, but he was doing stuff out in California for the space agency. And they were particularly interested at that time about the question of whether there's life on Mars. In fact, <laughs> interesting thing, they're still interested in that. And so Jim was asked about it. And Jim Jim went at it rather unconventionally. Instead of saying, oh, well, let's look in the microscopes and see what we can find, Jim said, 
well, let's ask what would the conditions would be for having life. And Jim came up with the conclusion that the conditions were not, not good for having life, which, in fact, didn't entirely please his masters, because it meant that there was no, no longer any point in, in getting funds for building spaceships to go to Mars. But, but be that as it may, and so Jim was thinking in these terms about, about planets, about conditions for life, all of these sorts of things. And I say, if you like, he got into it a little bit backwards, but that's what we do. And at some point in the mid-60s, Jim, I think he he claims to have had a Saul on the road to Damascus experience. He he said, oh, my God, I think the Earth is an organism. Now, one of the things he he certainly draws attention to is that wonderful photograph from a spaceship of of planet Earth, which, you know, is sitting there, right there. Uh, Whether that was it or not, I don't know. But anyhow, by the end of the 60s, Jim was pretty much, well, not just pretty much, totally convinced that the Earth is an organism. Now, what? let me say two things about this. First of all, as I say, Jim's something of a maverick. So he wasn't you know, a fellow of uh, an Oxbridge College or, or working at the University of Manchester. So he, in fact, lived in a rural village, I, I, somewhere in the south, I, Wiltshire or somewhere like that, not important. And the interesting thing is the other, only other, as it were, what we call it, uh, educated, you know, member of that village was none other than the novelist, uh, you know, the Nobel novelist who wrote Lord of the Flies, William Golding. Mm-hmm. And so they would get together, I, I, I think, two or three times a week in the pub. Uh, Golding particularly liked to drink. And they would talk and, and discuss. And I, obviously, Jim tried out these ideas with Golding. And it was Golding, in fact, who gave him the name Gaia. He said, you know, this is an old idea. You're not the first to come up with this, Jim. And why don't you call it Gaia? And Jim said, I love this. Now, as it happens... I think Golding was, you know, as one might say, pre-adapted for this, because as a young man, he'd been very, very keen on Rudolf Steiner, the the German-Austrian, I think he was, uh, kind of mystic polymath. uh, Amongst other things, he was the man who founded the Waldorf schools, very, very popular in places like California. And uh, so, and, and one of the things that Steiner said quite openly is, I think the Earth is an organism. So, in fact, you know, uh, Golding, as I say, was pre-adapted to, to do this. Now, to what extent he influenced Jim, I don't know. If you ask Jim, he denies it, obviously. But we do know that he sent one of his children to a, a Waldorf school, a handicapped child, and spoke very highly of it. So he knew a lot. But anyhow, so by the early... Se- by the early uh, 70s, Jim was convinced that the Earth is an organism. At about this time, he got in touch with Lynn, Mar- Lynn Margulis uh, in, in America and told her about it. And she responded very enthusiastically and certainly became a sort of a, a co-worker with him. I don't think she was the original person. I think later in life, she, she went off in rather other directions. But they were always very close in that sort of way. Although Jim keeps assuring me, no sex, no sex no sex. Uh, but anyhow, what happened was they published a paper, I think, in, what, 72, 72 73, right. in, 
Yeah, in, 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 uh, and they, they put it out and they argued this. Well, it, to a certain extent, I won't say it went over like a lead balloon, but it was certainly not suddenly picked up as you know the Nobel Prize winning discovery of, of the 70s. And they worked away at it over a number of years. And things didn't really start to go ballistic, as it were, public until the end of the decade when Jim published a popular book on the Gaia hypothesis. And then, as it were, all hell let loose. Now, I, as I say, I was dragooned, not dragooned, I, was, I, I found myself writing a book on this. So I followed all of this through. And it was very interesting because the whole idea of Gaia, I mean, how do you, how do you prove it? And if you prove it, what kind of evidence are you going to use? And is this evidence uh, going to stand up? And in the 70s, everybody, the very trendy philosopher was Karl Popper with his idea of falsifiability. You know, you've got to be able to put uh, science up to be falsified. And so, as you might expect, through the 80s, a number of people wrote very copiously on the whole uh, Gaia hypothesis and is it falsifiable uh, and that sort of thing. I, uh, and when I did the first draft of my book, I covered all of this stuff. And I should say that when I'd done it and I looked at the sort of 200 pages that I'd done of a first draft, I said, oh, my God, this is the most. Well, I won't use the word that I use, but it begins with an F and ends with a K. Uh, and I said, this is just the most boring thing I've ever read. <laughs> so I sat back and I I say, what is going on? What's really interesting about Gaia? And then the penny dropped was that, as I said, at the end of the at the end of the seventies, Jim published this this book on Gaia, and it, it, it's a it's a bestseller. It, you know, it's an idea which just takes off like you wouldn't believe, and it, you know, it's so popular with the public. And as you might imagine, places you know, places like California, you know, virtually wanted to talk about Saint Jim Lovelock. I mean, it was you know, it was really up there, up there alley. But the interest, what interested me as a philosopher, a historian philosopher, was the fact that the scientific community loathed it. They absolutely detested it. And we, you know, the two most popular big writers in biology were Richard Dawkins, a selfish gene man, and Steve Gould, who you know, punctuated equilibria, but yeah. he wrote those essays ever since Darwin. And they, you know, they argued about evolutionary theory nonstop. But amazingly, they came together and saying that Gaia is total BS. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's not only not science, it's worse than science. It, it gives science a bad name. It's like Velikovsky or something like that. I don't know how many of your audience are old enough to remember Velikovsky. They had the chap who was into comets, which uh, you know, caused the, de the Red Sea to divide and mm -hmm. all of those sorts of things. But anyhow, it was kind of that kind of level of stuff. So, of course, I realized that now I got a really interesting story uh, to tell, which I, in fact, that, that's what my book's about. Now, one of the things I had to do then was I wanted to say, okay, let's start at the beginning. Jim's a good scientist. He's okay. He's an inventor, but he, he's a good scientist. I mean, and he, he's a physical chemist. He's a physic. He's not a biologist. And I detected when I read Gould, particularly when I read both Gould and Lund, not Gould and Lewinton, Gould 
and Dawkins, there was a little bit of, what should we say, uh, not snobbery so much, but insider-outsider sort of stuff. Oh, yes, you're making claims that the Earth is an organism. Well, of course, that's a biological uh, a biological claim. And frankly, Jim Lovelock, you're not a biologist, and we are. And we can tell you, you know, as biologists, that what you're talking about is total nonsense. If you're etc., etc., well, okay, but... I wanted to say, well, okay, Jim never pretended to be a biologist. So what were the grounds that led him to think that the Earth might, in fact, be an organism? And, of course, for Jim, as a physical chemist, the key word is homeostasis. Are things in homeostasis? That's the whole thing about being a human being. Jim's not interested in evolution and natural selection. I mean, I don't mean he denies it or he wouldn't talk about it, but that's not where he's at. On the other hand, things being in balance, which, of course, biologists, physiologists like Walter Cannon and others have been. Uh, so homeostasis, now, that was Jim's kind of language because it, it's all about chemical feedbacks and all of these things. So Jim immediately, as it were, gone on to the idea, if the Earth is an organism, what would be the evidence? The evidence would be that the Earth is, in fact, in homeostasis. And then, I, so I went back and I looked at that first paper that he'd written with with Margulis, and it, it's interesting because in his book, it's he doesn't have the pictures that he uses in that original uh, article, and that's a mistake because when you go back to look at the pictures in the article, oh my goodness, he shows amazingly the Earth when it was formed from detritus uh, around the around the sun. When it was formed, it ought to have been hot, and then it should have cooled, and then it should start heating up again from the effect of the sun. In other words, what we should see is a kind of dip down, and then you know, looking a little bit like the economy in 2008, 2006, it was terrific. In 2008, it was the pits. But by 2015, it was up and doing well, and, and it's continued to be so. And so I looked at this, and I said, but Jim said, we don't have that. It seems to be stable. And, of course, you know, we've got fossil evidence and rock evidence to suggest. So Jim says, yeah, the world, the globe is in homeostasis. Now, the question is, why? So in other words, he, I mean, he wasn't being stupid in arguing that the Earth is an organism. He wasn't using biological arguments, but he, he was anything but stupid. And I, I realized this. And of course, this it started to make, from, to my point of view, started to make the whole story really exciting because I got a really good scientist who was a bit of a maverick, but who'd come up with this idea. And dear God, as a really good scientist, he wasn't just going on because it, you know, it wasn't, he, he wasn't going on like, you know, some pagan in California. If it feels good, it must be good. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had real, a real argument. However, this then led him into trouble because he got to show how the homeostasis curves. And so he looked at the sorts of things which would be important. And the sorts of things which would be important are the sort of relative, uh, uh, the relative range of, of, of uh, land and sea on, on the globe. And of course, that took him into plate tectonics and things like that. And one of the issues that he took up was if the Earth's in some kind of homeostasis, then the, certainly the sea is salty. But it, it shouldn't be, and it didn't, 
as it were, become super salty, like the Dead Sea. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, it's so salty. It's, it's like olive oil. You put your hand in, and it, it, I swear, it's kind of greasy. It's, it's amazing. Um, so, as I say, Jim asked about questions like that, and he came up with solutions like, well, in order, notice the phrase, in order to keep the Earth in homeostasis, the, uh, what happens is certain lagoons form and they, they, they collect the seawater and then they evaporate in the sunshine and then they get sucked down by plate tectonics into the earth. And so this all happens in order to keep things in a stable position. Well, of course, this is teleological language, final course language. And of course, this is a big no-no for biologists. This is a big no-no. I mean, they don't want to talk in terms of things happening in order because this takes you back to why did it happen like this? Well, because God designed it this way. I mean, it's, that's you know Plato's position. It's the it's the Christian position. It's somebody like Archdeacon Paley. All of these things. And after Darwin, nobody wanted to think in those terms. They all wanted to say no. Things don't happen in order to. Uh, they all are just a question of laws in motion going on and on. So, in other words, the interesting thing about Jim was he was now violating the, as it were, some of the, you know, the, the, the basic rules of doing biology. So, as a biochemist, he'd come up with this idea. Then, in order to, to justify it, he, he made these claims, which were teleological, as we call it. And that, of course, really got up the nose of the biologists. And so by the mid-80s or that sort of thing, all sorts of terms like pseudoscience and that sort of thing were being thrown around. But as I say, the paradox was, at the same time, if anything, that made Jim even more popular with the pagans. I mean, I used the pagans uh, out in California and all his other supporters. Uh, and the, I mean, not just pagans. I mean, my God, the Church of England, or in America, the Episcopalians, they actually commissioned a mass, which was based on the Gaia hypothesis. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just a crowd of people, you know, taking their clothes off and dancing around the sacred oak at midnight before they have sex, after they had sex, while they have sex, and before, as it were, and before they have sex. No, there were all sorts of, you know... I would often say, you know, holistic types who are rather given to wearing Birkenstocks and wouldn't, uh, like my wife, buy uh, holistic organic uh, dog food for our dogs and that sort of thing. Certainly that. But he was hugely popular on that. So, of course, as I say, for somebody like me, as a philosopher who's interested in sort of history of ideas, this was terrific. Now, I'll, 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 I'll end in a moment and let you get a word in edgeways. <laughs> What was interesting was, as I say, Jim is a good scientist. And so he said, okay, obviously there's something wrong. And I think I've, obviously, I've, I, I, I'm doing something wrong, even if, I, even if in my guts I, I think my answer, I mean, he always thought his answers were right. So that was never an issue. Jim never, ever hesitated in his view that the Earth is an organism. But he did realize that he'd got to come up better than sort of Salt Lake lagoons uh, uh, drying up and sucking the salt down into, this, into the Earth. Now, it turns out, of course, an inventor. So what were the kind of machines which were big in the 60s and 70s? 
I'll tell you what they were. They were computers. Not the big kind of computers that we think of, you know, back in the 40s and that sort of thing. But by the beginning of the 70s, uh, if they weren't full-blooded laptops, they were starting to go that kind of way. And in fact, there were all sorts of uh, kits and things to put together your own computer. This was before Apple and, and all of these sort of Bill Gates and these people came along. And of course, Jim... Of course, this was meat and drink to him, meat and drink to him. So by the, by the 80s, Jim was not only building his own computers, but becoming very, very good at, at programming and these things. As I say, this guy is a genius. There's no question about that. And so what he did then was to start to build, as it were, theoretical models, which could show how the Earth could be in... in in a state, a homeostasis according to regular laws. So one of the, the models he came up with, which is called Daisy World, he said, well, suppose you've got two kinds of daisies on the Earth, uh, one black and one white. And of course, the black ones are going to absorb sunlight and the white ones are, are going to reject it. And he was able to show that under the right conditions, what you'd get is a kind of balance, that the black ones would grow and grow, but then there'd be too many of them. And because the white ones were very few, they would have an advantage and so on and so forth. So he was, in fact, starting to put together really good models of that sort of thing. And I would say, as we come down to the present, I think a lot of Jim's ideas are still there. The only thing is uh, that... The Gaia hypothesis had such a bad reputation. Everybody thought, oh, my God, pseudoscience, pagans, California. I'm being a bit, being a bit unfair to California, but what the hell? <laughs> if, any, if any state one can be unfair about, it's California. But anyhow, as I say, so the term Gaia has tended to be absolutely one of those, you know, arose by any other name. Call it what the hell you like, as long as you don't call it Gaia. And these days they talk in terms of earth system science and that sort of thing. So, as I say, and I, I will bring my rather <laughs> lengthy statement to an end or exposition to an end. As I say, it's an absolutely fascinating story. One more thing I have to add in. Sure. Was, the 80s were the time when the, science, when the biologists were tearing each other apart. They'd had this huge row about sociobiology in, in, in the 1970s, Edward O. Wilson putting it forward. And then people in his own department, Marxists like Richard Lewinton and Steve Gould going at him. So the, the scientific community was the, not the scientific community, the biological community, the, the evolutionary community was not a, a crowd of happy campers. And in a way, I think the Gaia hypothesis was almost, as, as one might say, particularly given that Dawkins is a prominent atheist, a, 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 gift, a, a gift from heaven. Because what it meant was they could all combine together and yell at Jim, oh, pseudoscience, pseudoscience, we're real scientists. And, and I think that it's very interesting. People think, oh, pseudoscience has to be something. I mean, are there, you know, it's pseudoscience to say that vaccination is bad for you, that it, gives, you know, it leads to autism. And that sort of, seems to be an objective thing. What I wanted to suggest was that, in fact, pseudoscience often is more of an emotive term that people use when they're feeling insecure. And so as I say, I think going back to evolutionary biology, they were tense. And in a way, 
you know, for all they criticised Jim Lovelock, as I say, he really was a gift from heaven because they could combine together and say, we're real scientists and this is pseudoscience. So, you know, give us our status. And of course, they did this uh, before they went back to quarrelling again. OK, I've done too much talking, as I always do. How's that? Thank you, Michael. So just to uh, summarize uh, quickly. So as you suggested, the argument basically uh, is that uh, what Jim realized, the sun's energy has been increasing over time, which would suggest the planet would warm. But what he found out through his study was that um, a temperature, and as you said as well, a chemical composition have kept constant in the face of the sun's increasing uh, power. Um, and so, uh, his conclusion was, uh, therefore homeostasis developed early in the history of the planet, as you, as you know, um, and that, uh, that's to suggest, as, as he said, we're moving from a world of having life to the world of being life. And of course, this is what drove biologists, uh, up the wall, phrased another way, uh, that the planet, uh, as, as was phrased, uh, he suggested the distinction between life affecting the conditions of the atmosphere to life actively controlling them. Uh, so that's, that's a good way to put it, uh, David. Uh, I, I do think, obviously, the question which comes up is, and I gather that you know, oil companies, is does this mean that Jim Lovelock is denying the possibility of global warming? Does, I mean, global warming is anything but homeostasis. Yes, and we'll, we'll, right, we'll get to that in a second. Just okay, to, just, fine, to, okay, right, just to conclude, relative to uh, your noting, uh, Wilson uh, and others uh, do little, as you note, amongst others, Richard Dawkins, of course, and you mentioned Stephen uh, Jay Gould. Their argument generally could be uh, summarized as uh, under natural selection, homeostasis must be the consequence of natural selection brought on by reproduction. Uh, rather, uh, Lovelock was arguing that it's the initial spur for such reproduction, and they, they, therefore, from their perspective, he Lovelock has it backwards, and of course, this drove them uh, to be such harsh critics. Let's go to um, the interpretation of Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, and I, I'll note uh, there was a recent uh, essay in Critical Inquiry summarizing this uh, by Leah Aronowski, Gas Guzzling Gaia, or A Prehistory of Climate Change Denialism, and where she points out that uh, Gaia in context of Anthropocene warming or the climate crisis and its effect on homeostasis, um, what she suggests is that there were two, as I said in the introduction, radical interpretations. One is that if the planet's a living organism, then we have a right or duty to protect it. The other is the, the position taken by, in the 70s and 80s, uh, by the fossil fuel interest, industry saying, as you just suggested, that, well, if the planet is self-correcting uh, and is resilient, it's immune then from uh, Anthropocene or human-caused uh, carbon emissions. Um, and therefore, we don't have to be responsible or we don't have to be concerned about uh increased carbon concentrations in the atmosphere. So um, I know you have a sense or an appreciation for what Lovelock intended, so it'd be interesting to hear your comment about that in light of these 
really right. differing I, I, views. I, I, yeah, I think this is really, you, you're really going right to the heart of it. I think a basic difference between Lovelock and, let's say, uh, Gould and Dawkins was that for Gould and Dawkins, it's natural selection, the processes of evolution, which led to the kind of earth we've got, which, as it happens, and I don't think they want to deny it, was homeostatic. I mean, they were quite happy to say that. But, of course, the whole thing about evolution, particularly Darwinian evolution, is that conditions change. There's, there's no absolutes. And it could well be that what worked for, for a while, later on, you know, becomes a total disaster. I mean, for instance, obviously having eyes, being able to see, is a terrific adaptation. But then if you're like some species of, of, uh, of mammal or fish or whatever, you go back into the caves where you don't need sight and where eyes can get terribly quickly irritated and that sort of thing. Well, eyes, from being a terrific thing, are now a bad thing, and natural selection will work to get rid of them. So, as I say, I think it would certainly be true to say that for the regular biologists, they didn't want to deny homeostasis, that they saw it, as it were, as a consequence and not, if you like, some sort of necessary state of being. Whereas I do think it's true to say, and I think you hinted at this, I think that certainly when Jim started in the early 70s, he not only thought that the Earth was homeostatic, but I think he thought in some sense, not that the Earth is thinking, but that the processes would, as it were, uh, keep the Earth. Uh, homeostatic or keep it in balance. And of course, this was the whole point about the teleological arguments that he was introducing, particularly towards the end of the 70s. All this stuff about the, as I say, you know, the, the lagoons draining off parts of the sea and then, as it were, crystallizing the salt and then getting it sucked down in the earth in order to keep the, uh, the salinity of the sea at a certain level and not get it, let it get right out of hand so it wouldn't work for, for living organisms like the Sea of the Dead Sea. I mean, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea, you know, for very good reason, because it's dead. Um, so, as I say, I think towards the end of the 70s, Jim was certainly thinking in those sorts of terms. So I think if it were the case... Uh, that Jim was approached by uh, oil companies or, or this sort of thing. I, 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 Jim would not sell his soul to the devil. I mean, he's not that kind of guy. I mean, he, he, a, he doesn't have to, but B, you know, he is a maverick. And he, he's not going to be anybody's, as it were, you know, uh, waiter or call boy or tatamite or however you want to put, however you want to put it. But that's not Jim's personality. But I think he would have been a lot more empathetic to the idea that even with global warming, uh, it's going to be possible that the Earth can, as it were, right itself. But I think, I think it's fair to say, as he worked on this through the 80s and 90s and came to see that those rather simplistic uh, teleological end-directed arguments just aren't working, and as he then started to develop computer models, which the Daisy World, which was intended to show how through regular laws, without appealing to God's design or things working towards the, a, a, an end, how they could in fact 
as it were, establish homeostasis. And the interesting thing is some very good biologists like Bill Hamilton picked up on what Jim was doing and said, this is terrific. We want to work with this. So, you know, the thing is, he, he, he'd started to win over very important members of the biological community. But I think it's fair to say that having done that, then, of course, he was opening himself up. And I don't think he would have denied this to the possibility that things could change and things would get out of homeostasis. But in other words, there was no magic, as it were, which I think there was a little bit at the beginning of the 70s. There was no magic about homeostasis. It, it happens, but it's, the, it's a result of regular laws. And if you introduce things uh, which aren't normal, I mean, suppose, you know, suppose the sun went out or something like that, uh, then obviously homeostasis uh, would, would not obtain. So I think that that would be the kind of way the argument would kind of go. That, that's my thinking. Although, of course, the other fact you've got to remember is that Jim Lovelock is, what, 102 now? So even he, I think, was starting to run out of steam a little bit as we got into the new millennium. Anyhow, that would be my take on that. As I think, I think you're, you're raising a very interesting point. And I think you're, what you're pointing to, I would very much suspect, is a kind of change of perspective a bit by Jim Lovelock. I'm never quite sure how much. I mean, I think he always has a yearning to be, you know, the earth is an organism, is an organism, is an organism. He really does. And so, you know, I, I still think privately, as it were, he says, yes, but it does. These things do happen in order to keep. So, <clears throat> but he knows it. He knows that the general public aren't and his students aren't. It's a system science, which which is not where it's at. So, as I say, I don't think anybody who, let us say, is a follower of Lovelock is necessarily committed to the idea that global warming is just a myth. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, that although uh, climate uh, has been, as he, of course, as as argued, biologically maintained, uh, human pollutants are are still uh, problematic, and that this view that Gaia became appealing to free, or the rationale that it can appeal to free market evangelists, is sort of uh, yeah, I think that's problematic true, yeah. to say the least. Right. I I, I think that's I think that's true. Uh, uh, Jim has always, as I say, had a, a, at one level a conventional streak about him. I mean, he, you know, he was, is a very good biochemist, very well respected in his field. And I think that this was always important for Jim. But I do have a feeling that however he was feeling deep, deep down inside him, I think Jim was sufficiently in tune with the scientific community and what it was doing to say, if we're going to do this, let's do it in a reasonably orthodox way, which, of course, he was doing right from the beginning. I mean, when he was arguing for homeostasis, he wasn't doing it because he'd had a vision, you know, at, at full moon, as it were, under the oak tree. He was using you know, the best kind of best quality uh, biochemical or rather chemical engineering thing. That's why he was you know, hired by NASA or whatever it was. So he could give them advice on the, the, um, the composition of Mars and its atmosphere and that sort of thing. So he was just uh, doing the Gaia stuff. He was just continuing doing you know, very good science. Well, uh, Michael, we're at our time. So I want to thank you for this discussion overview of Jim's work. And, and the guy hypothesis. Thank you again.
And you too. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Bye-bye now. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.